In the early afternoon of Friday, October 20th, 1967, Roger Patterson and Robert Gimlin were riding upstream on horseback along the east bank of the Bluff Creek. Sometime between 1.15 and 1.40 p.m., they came to an overturned tree with a large root system at right at the turn of the creek, and it was almost as big or as high as a standard-sized room. When they rounded it, they spotted a figure behind it. It was either crouching beside the creek to their left or standing there on the opposite bank. And Gimling later described himself as in a mild state of shock. Patterson initially estimated its height at 6 feet 6 inches to 7 feet. And he was about 25 feet away from the creature at the closest point. Patterson said that his horse reared up, sensing the figure, and he spent about 20 seconds trying to uh, keep himself from falling off the saddle and controlling the horse. And so he, he worked himself around to the other side, and he was getting out his camera from a saddlebag before he could then run towards or go towards the figure uh, while operating his camera. And he yelled to his partner, he said, cover me, to Gimling, meaning to get the gun out. And Gimling estimated he came within maybe 60 to 90 feet of Patterson. Then, rifle in hand, he dismounted, but did not point his rifle at the creature. The film shows that Patterson and Gimling claimed this, you know, that, that they saw this large, hairy, bipedal, ape-like figure with short silvery brown or darkish red brown or even black hair and it was covering most of its body including its prominent breast and chest area the figure in the film generally matches the description of any bigfoot offered by others who have claimed to have seen one Patterson would later characterize the creature's expressions as one of contempt and of disgust. You know how it is when an umpire tells a player that, you know what, one more word and you're out of the game. Well, that's the way it felt when they stared directly at this creature. Hello, my name is Don Mast, and this is the podcast about everything. Besides being your host each week, uh, here's a little more about me. I'm an Instagram bookstore owner. That just kind of gives me the opportunity to actually buy more books without my wife knowing. Uh, I also am the co-founder of Rough House Marketing uh, with my son, Elliot. And I'm an award-winning tech and advertising executive, been doing it for many, many years. Uh, I'm also a hubby and a dad and an antique collector, and I collect a lot of things, uh, anything from Edison uh, phonographs to, you know, as I mentioned, old smelly books from the 1800s, as well as like those, those creepy tin types and things like that. So, um, and furthermore, you know, I love collecting old stories. And on that note, I'd like to introduce my co-host, Michael Allison. Hey, I'm Michael Allison, and uh, <sighs> I'm an artist. And, uh, 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 u
<laughs> you might want to remove that mask so people will understand what you're saying. Um, you weren't kidding about the Yeti costume, I guess. No, I wasn't. <sighs> wow, that thing is so darn hot. I really need to install some air conditioning. Um, uh, hi. Um, now I feel silly again. Uh, I'm, I'm the co-host, Mike Allison. I'm an artist, uh, sculptor, painter, uh, muralist, uh, restorer of old things. Um, eventually going to start restoring Dawn. And um, <laughs> I'm dressed in a Yeti suit. So we're up to date with our themes. <laughs> Yes, and, and and I must say to those who listen, he is a real renaissance man. And uh, so this is our concluding cryptid topic. And this is probably one of the most exciting for me, uh, most fascinating uh, topics we can discuss today. We're going to look at Bigfoot, the Yeti, Sasquatch, and of course, the abominable snowman. Uh Don, before we go any further, I want to be completely clear for our audience because you know they hang on our every word. The Yeti, the Abominable Snowman, and uh, Sasquatch and his Bigfoot, while similar, are actually different creatures from different and yet very different from similar but very different cultures. Okay, I'm rolling my eyes now. You just aren't any fun anymore okay <laughs> how are they different explain that to me okay well you know we love the facts so in <laughs> 1958 journalist andrew uh genzoli of the humboldt times from humboldt california hmm. highlighted a fun and dubious letter from a reader about loggers in northern california who discovered some mysterious huge footprints Maybe we have a relative of the abominable snowman of the Himalayas, uh, Genzoli jokingly wrote in his September 21st column alongside the letter. And, and so that Genzoli guy thought that, you know, these legends were the same? Yeah, and uh, most people do these days. Um, however, according to uh, H. Sayagher, the Yeti was part of the pre-Buddhist beliefs of several of the Himalayan peoples. He was told that the Lepcha people worshipped a glacier being as a god of the hunt. He also reported that the followers of the Bon religion, that's the one that predated Buddhism, believed that the blood of the Maigo, or the wild man, had use in certain mystical ceremonies. The being was depicted as an ape-like creature who carries a large stone as a weapon and makes a whistling sound. <laughs> Okay, so I have one very important question. You know, a, a lot of these cryptids, man or ape-like creatures, are extremely muscular. You know, they're ripped. And, you know, the, the dogmen that we talked about last week, supposedly, you know, from what people have said, have amazing abs. So what about these snow creatures? You know, how do their abs stack up? Well, they're pretty much described as furry ape men. So I think you're confused. I think you're thinking of the abdominal snowman. <laughs> okay, now I hate wow. you. Wow. <laughs> that is truly abominable. Okay, anyway, so, so, so this is a, a supernatural being that exists in the folklore and religion of the Himalayan mountains. And 
its culture and its people, right? Yep. And much like the Native American tribes we've previously discussed in other shows, these people have a strong belief in magic and shamanism. Hmm. Okay. So. Wow. (laughs) I might let that in. My Um, computer just woke up. (laughs) No worries. No worries. So. Here we go again with these universal cultural stories of Harry Wildman, and I'm th- not talking about local people here. You find this in every culture, except these creatures are considered to be more of a supernatural being, correct? Yeah. Uh, the name Abominable Snowman was coined in 1921. So you see how recent so much of this is. The same year, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Howard Burry led the 1921 British Mount Mount Everest Reconnaissance Expedition. In the book, he wrote, uh, he included an account of crossing the Lapka La at 21,000 feet, where he found footprints that he believed were probably caused by a large loping gray wolf, which in the soft snow forms double tracks, rather like those of a barefoot man. He added that his Sherpa guides, and of course, for those who don't know, Sherpas aren't just guides. That's a that's a separate tribe of Himalayan people who live in the high mountain areas. Um, his guide at once volunteered that the tracks might be that of the wild man of the snows, to which they gave the, ma- the name Mito Kangmai. Mito meaning man bear, and Kangmai translates as snowman. Okay, so that gets us to the snowman part. Where did the term, and I'm not going to say abdominal, but abominable come from? Yes, I hear a lot of people say abdominal. (laughs) Uh, Confusion exists between Howard Burry's recitation of the term Mito Kangmai and the term used in Bill Tillman's book on Mount Everest from 1938. Tillman had used the word mech, which doesn't exist in the Tibetan language, and Kangmai when relating the ter- coining of the term abdominal. Uh, yeah, there I just did it. <laughs> abominable snowman. See, you, you set me up. <laughs> Further evidence of Mech being a misnomer is provided by the Tibetan language uh, authority, Professor David uh, Snellgrove from the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. He dismissed the word Mech as impossible because the continent's T-C-H can't be conjoined in the Tibetan language. Uh, documentation suggests that the term Mech Kangmai is derived from one source. It's been suggested that Mech is simply a spelling of Meto. Okay, so here we go again. A bunch of explorers encounter a complex culture and mangle everything from the language and their beliefs. You know, wh- where have we heard this before? Practically and, ever up every episode. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's true. It's true. And, and, and we know that H.P. Lovecraft adapted the word my goo, uh, my, my goo, I, yeah. if I recall, yeah. to my go uh, for one of his races of space monsters. What's next? A, you know, a rogue reporter making stuff up? I mean, come on. Well, that's exactly what happened. The use of Abominable Snowman came when Henry Newman, a longtime contributor to the Statesman in Calcutta, writing under the pen name Kim, 
introduced the porter, interviewed the porters of the Everest Reconnaissance Expedition on their return to Darjeeling. Newman mistranslated the word mito as filthy. You know, <laughs> you filthy, stinking yeah. apes. Yeah. <laughs> Substituting the term abominable, perhaps out of artistic license. As author Bill Tillman accounts, Newman wrote wrote long after in a letter to the Times, the whole story just seems like such a joyous creation, I just sent it to one or two newspapers. In 1925, N.A. Tombazi, a photographer and member of the Royal Geographical Society, writes that he saw a creature at about 15,000 feet near the Zimu Glacier. Tombazi later wrote that he observed the creature from about 200 to 300 yards for about a minute. Unquestionably, the figure and outline was exactly like a human being walking upright and stopping occasionally to pull at some dwarf rhododendron bushes. It showed up against uh, up dark against the snow, and as far as I could make out, it wore no clothes. About two hours later, Tombazi and his companions descended the mountain and saw the creature's prints, described as similar in shape to those of a man, but only six to seven inches long by four inches wide. The prints were those, undoubtedly, of a biped. Hmm. So, we have claimed creature sightings, and you know, not you know, just no big feet. I mean, depends on my shoes. I mean, I'm between a ten and a half to an eleven, and I leave bigger tracks than that. Yep. Um, and and also notice that the creatures are described as dark, furry. They're not all white. That's another Western convention, mostly thanks to cartoons right. and things like that. So, we have a smaller creature than Bigfoot. And alleged Yeti footprints found by Michael Ward and photographed by Eric Shipton, taken at the Menlung Glacier during the 1951 Everest expedition with Edmund Hillary in Nepal. Western interest in the Yeti peaked in the 1950s. While attempting to scale Mount Everest, Shipton took photographs of a number of large prints in the snow. At about two thousand feet above, or twenty thousand feet, excuse me, above sea level. These photos have been subject to intense scrutiny and debate. Some argue they're the best evidence of Yeti's existence, while others contend the prints are those of a mundane creature that have been distorted by the melting snow. Peter Byrne reported finding a Yeti footprint in 1948 in northern Sikkim, India near the Zimu Glacier while on holiday from a Royal Air Force assignment in India. Huh. Okay, so what about Sir Edmund Hillary? I mean, I, I, I didn't hear about him, and he's probably the most famous English mountaineer in history, right? Well, we mentioned him briefly, but we'll go into a little depth here. In 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzin Norgay, who was his Sherpa guide, reported seeing large footprints while scaling Mount Everest. Hillary would later discount the Yeti reports as unreliable. In his first autobiography, Tenzin said he believed the Yeti was a large ape, and although he'd never seen one himself, his father had seen one twice. But in his second autobiography, he said that he had become much more skeptical about its existence. But the mythology of the Tibetan people and their stories of sometimes terrifying encounters with the unpredictable snowmen, still persist. Now, that's interesting because, you know, in addition to footprints, you know, weren't there remains that I had heard about that were hidden away in like a Tibetan Buddhist monastery? Yes. 
Um, the well, one, one monastery claimed a preserved scalp, which they had almost like a religious relic. Uh, when finally analyzed, it turned out to be made from goat skin. <laughs> then the oil millionaire, adventurer, pilot, and paranormal aficionado Tom Slick, uh, great name, uh, yes. convinced no less celebrity than actor Jimmy Stewart to smuggle part of a preserved Yeti hand out of Tibet. But when it was subjected to a DNA test, it was found to be part of a mummified human hand. Ugh. Okay, so what about our own wild man from the Pacific Northwest? I mean, come on. Let's talk about the main man, Bigfoot. Okay. Well, we know there are various wild man myths from all over the world. It's a universal. <laughs> In Western Canada, Bigfoot is a large, mysterious humanoid creature purported to inhabit the wild and forested areas of Oregon and the west coast of North America. Bigfoot is also known as Sasquatch. And that's an Anglicanized version of the, of the name Sasquatch from the Halkuimeolum language. Boy, did I mangle that. Halkuimeolum language spoken by the First Nations people in southwestern British Columbia. However, the, northern, the modern U.S. concept of Bigfoot can be traced directly to stories published in the Humboldt Times, which we previously mentioned, in 1958. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, so once again, we have a legendary story that's been promoted in, in newspapers and spread to the masses. And, you know, the public just eats it up. Right. But there, you know, there's also a Native American folklore attachment to this as well. Oh, yeah. Over time, stories about Bigfoot have entered into the oral tradition and become part of regional folklore. The historical record of Bigfoot in the Oregon County begins in 1904 with the sightings of a hairy wild man by settlers in the Sixes River area in the Coast Range. Similar accounts by miners and hunters followed in later decades. In 1924, miners on Mount St. Helens claimed to have been attacked by a giant ape. In incidents widely reported in the Oregon press, local Native Americans used this event to discuss publicly their own knowledge of Tiatsko, or the hirsute wild Indians of the woods. Traditions first documented in 1865 by ethnographer George Gibbs. And of course, there was the Roger Patterson and Robert Gimlin uh, video footage in 1967 which supposedly shows a Bigfoot in Northern California. It's worth noting that the original evidence that launched the Bigfoot craze, a trail of oversized footprints discovered in the same region in 1958, was revealed to be a prank by logger Ray L. Wallace in 2002. Many people believe the Bigfoot creature of the Patterson-Gimlin film was a costume prankster as well, though many people have always believed the footage is real. A fellow named... Bob Hieronymus, who was an associate of Patterson's, claimed to be the person in the suit. Bob Burns III, an actor and costume collector who often played apes and hairy monsters in low-budget movies, claims to know the person who actually built the costume. Oh, it, and from what I understand, Burns is still around, and he has this monstrous collection of costumes and props from you know different science fiction films and horror movies. And so, 
you know, lots of pranks and speculative newspaper stories. You know, this sounds more, you know, a, a, a bit like a Snallygaster in the New Jersey Devil that we talked about in the our Monster Trifecta podcast. Yeah, a lot of these creatures wouldn't be so well known and so huh, universally feared if it wasn't for, you know, uh, newspaper people. Uh, you know, playing them up. And, and and it goes as far back to Ben Franklin as we covered in the New Jersey Devil. Mm -hmm. uh, but, of course, the author should speak for himself. The reporter, Genzoli, said, uh, we go back and dig through old newspapers and stuff and find scattered reports of wild men here or wild men there, but it doesn't coalesce into a general discussion until the 1950s. And isn't it interesting that all of this stuff with Bigfoot, you know, really kind of becomes popular around the 50s. And, you know, that was the time of great paranoia, you know, with the Cold War, nuclear weapons, communism, the Twilight Zone, you know, the time of UFOs and, you know, all of this broader interest in things, you know, like the paranormal. Yeah. Genzoli uh, said that he simply thought the mysterious footprints made a good Sunday morning story. But to his surprise, it really fascinated readers. In response, Genzoli and fellow Humboldt Times journalist Betty Allen published follow-up articles about the footprints, reporting the name the loggers had given to this so-called creature who left the tracks. They called him Bigfoot. And so a legend was born. Even though the loggers blamed acts of vandalism on Bigfoot, Allen thought that most of them didn't really believe in the creature. It seemed to her that they were just passing along stories with, you know, the flavor of legend or folklore. Still, the story spread to newspapers all across the country, and the TV show Truth or Consequences offered $1,000 to anyone who could prove the existence of Bigfoot. Here we go. We have that financial incentive for people to begin hunting for Bigfoot in the woods. I mean... That seems to have continued to this very day. I mean, I, I, I see it all the time. Yeah. It comes down to who's making the huge 16-inch tracks in the vicinity of Bluff Creek. And that's certainly <laughs> not a size 11 shoe. Ginzoli <laughs> wrote about this in one of his columns in October of that year. Are the tracks a human hoax? Are the actual marks of a huge but harmless wild man traveling through the wilderness? Can this be some legendary-sized animal? Most people who believe in Bigfoot's existence or claim to have seen one assert that they're hair-covered bipeds with ape-like features up to eight feet tall that leave correspondingly huge footprints. Um, they are generally considered to be non-aggressive animals. Uh, their shyness and human-like intelligence makes them elusive and thus rarely seen though some wilderness travelers claim to have smelled their stench or heard their screams and whistles <laughs> or their loud tree knocks echoing through the forest. And that's usually one of the auditory evidences that are presented, some sort of strange call and loud knocking on trees. Um, you see this over and over again. Uh, oh, yes. A few physical anthropologists, such as Jeff Meldrum at Ohio State, State Idaho State University and Grover Krantz at Washington State have espoused the biological reality of Bigfoot based on their examination of the 1967 film footage of the purported Bigfoot taken in Northern California's Calamas Mountains 
or on their morphological analysis of footprints, some of which actually show dermal ridges, like those found in the 1980s by a U.S. Forest Service employee in the Blue Mountains of northeastern Oregon. Most scientists, however, are skeptical and dismiss the phenomena as a product of the mistaken identification of known animals or are elaborate hoaxes with prints clearly planted to be deceptive. And of course, the knocking that they hear in the woods, of course, wouldn't be a large woodpecker, would it? I mean, no, or it wouldn't be the na uh, byproduct of the natural decay of old trees either. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So once this Bigfoot story went public, you know, it, it just kept snowballing. And uh, here we are talking about snow and okay, whatever. <laughs> He became a character in those old men's adventure magazines and also the, you know, the, the cheap trade publication novels. And these stories, you know, talk about him or talk about he, you know, yeah, Bigfoot was definitely a he, you know, and he was a, primor, a primal dangerous creature out of the past who lurked in uh, modern wilderness. And, you know, by the 1970s, you know, these pseudo documentaries came out and they were investigating all this evidence and, you know, films started to portray him and, you know, as a crazy sexual predator. Yep. And that's thanks to our old friends, the pulp ma men's magazines. And we talked about those in our pulp literature, uh, our two parter on pulp literature, the American pulp magazines uh, that were all for He-Men to read. I guess <laughs> what you've actually save scantily clad women from bears and tigers and sharks and of course communists being the 1950s the only thing left is bigfoot true yeah <laughs> and then and then in the 80s you know bigfoot showed up you know with a more softer side you know he became associated with environmentalism and a you know he was a symbol of the wilderness that, you know, we all needed to preserve and do our part, you know, and it wasn't, you know, Smokey the Bear, of course, you know, one big example is in 1987, where we had, you know, one of my favorite movies, and I think I mentioned this in an earlier podcast as well, Harry and the Hendersons, you know, he was portrayed not as a sexual predator, but, you know, they portrayed this Bigfoot as a, as a friendly, misunderstood creature, you know, who just needed the protection of, of course, John Lithgow and his family. I mean, that sounds normal. Yeah, I, I identify completely with Bigfoot being <laughs> friendly and misunderstood. Um, and, of course, that's the point. Um, this, this has become a folkloric, we'll call it a folkloric template. And it basically, the interests of society become reflected in how we view this creature, whether he's real or not. Okay, so why has this legend lasted for 60 years? Which, you know, in we're talking about legends on this mm -hmm. podcast on these podcasts, um, that's a relatively brief time because we have the Lambdon worm, which goes back, and we have the Loch Ness monster, which what fifth century? Um, oh, yeah, it takes on its own momentum because it's a media icon. That's what I kind of just said. Just as mm -hmm. nobody really needs to explain the characters who turn into wolves or in full moon or werewolves, no one needs to explain who a hairy man-ape walking through the woods would be. We automatically know it's Bigfoot. It's just something that's easy to refer to. We see legends of large ape-like beasts that can be found all over the world. In America, there's Bigfoot. And since 1976, 
The FBI has even had a file on him. <laughs> now, now, what could be more American than that? I mean, really? Yeah, we should all have be investigated by the FBI. <laughs> that uh, year, no, no, thanks. Yeah, Director Peter <laughs> Byrne, uh, the Bigfoot Information Center, an exhibition in the Dallas, in Dallas, Oregon, sent the FBI about fifteen hairs attached to a tiny piece of skin. Byrne wrote the organization that he couldn't identify what kind of animal it came from, and he was hoping the FBI might be able to do it. He also wanted to know if the FBI had analyzed suspected Bigfoot hair before, and if so, what the Bureau's conclusion was. At the time, Byrne was one of the most profound Bigfoot researchers, said Ben Ratchford, deputy editor of Skeptical Inquirer magazine. In 2019, a lot of people think Bigfoot have been, has, was just sort of a silly joke or what, whatever. I mean, yeah, you know, he, he, he actually, I think it was Sasquatch, really, that was in a lot of these beef jerky commercials as well, you know, where they were always poking fun at him and everything. But um, back in the 70s, Bigfoot was really, 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 really popular. And, you know, he actually had a cameo uh, on the $6 million man. Yep, that's right. That's right. Good old. So I think he turned out to be a robot on that, but that's beyond, <laughs> beside the point. Un, yeah. Unsurprisingly, the FBI found that the hair didn't belong to Bigfoot. In 1977, they sent the hair back to Byrne along with his scientific conclusion: the hairs are of deer family origin. Hmm. Four decades later, the Bureau declassified his Bigfoot file about this analysis. And to be clear. This is not evidence that the FBI endorses the existence of Bigfoot because people will say, oh, look, they declassified a file It's going on right now with UFOs. UFOs, um, yep. <laughs> any more than the U.S. military's decade-long investigation of unexplained aerial phenomena, known as UFOs, is an endorsement of the existence of aliens. I always remind people what Uf UFO stands for is unidentified flying object in other words somebody's seen something in the sky that they couldn't identify it doesn't mean anything more than that correct and you know in today's time you know we could have large drones that are just flying over that sure you know, a kid down the street could be playing with i mean it's 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 crazy but your own son it, it's be right. flying his drone <laughs> <laughs> and dad dad looks out the window half awake and Yells, yeah. everybody around the Martians are coming. So UFO. Yeah, yeah exactly. UFO. Yeah. So, you know, Bigfoot works. hunters. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and <laughs> Bigfoot hunters to this very day continue to come forward, you know, with stories and what they claim is, of course, physical evidence of the existence of these furry, crazy creatures. But there continues to be also a lot of TV shows about the hunts for Sasquatch. And, and, and actually, you know, I've watched a few of these and yeah, you know, they're kind of interesting at the beginning, but then there's just like a lot of nothing, you know, it's just like a lot of waiting around in the dark with your gun. They're bro venture shows. <laughs> <laughs> you get a bunch of bros, you get them all on, on board with something. Uh, could be digging in the Oak Island treasure pit. Could be going into haunted houses going out into the woods with guns late at night to look for Bigfoot. And they hear things and think they see things. <laughs> and, of course, 
everything is recorded through a filter that makes it look like infrared gear and um you can't really see anything right and and, and, I think, <laughs> and, and they slowly scare each other it's like an avid and Costello. it's see i think alcohol is somehow involved too to get everyone out there so i would hope so yeah i would just hope so <laughs> okay so unfortunately all this physical evidence and now dna analysis has turned out to be from bears deers raccoons oh and then there's the uh, not too long ago, there was a guy shipping around a paper mache finger stuffed full of possum guts with a rubber face and hand mm -hmm. and feet and covered with hair and frozen in a block of ice. Yeah, that, that, that guy's a creeper. His name is Ricky Dyer, and he actually was arrested again. You know, he's been arrested a couple of times, this time for eBay fraud, where he promised yeah. to deliver and didn't and kept the money. And so you know, this guy's definitely, you know, a class act. I mean, I guess if you're going to take some time and kill some possum and put them inside of a large costume and freeze it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's elaborate. Um, <laughs> but you know what they say? Grifters got a grift. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so we know from reports that these creatures aren't just isolated to the Pacific Northwest, but now we're getting reports from every state in the union. Yep. It spreads. And of course there, it, it, hits up against local folklore mm -hmm. and everything blends so the best known one is the folk monster or the boggy creek monster uh, sometimes it's called one or the other it's a sasquatch like creature said to haunt the network of creeks extending from the sulfur river bottoms in southern arkansas to the small town of folk uh over the years the creature has been seen by countless people people including respected citizens experienced hunters famous musicians even a police officer. It's also inspired several movies, most notably The Legend of Boggy Creek, which was a low-budget movie that became a drive-in sensation and made nearly $25 million during its run at drive-ins. Well, you know, newspaper accounts from the early 70s may have brought the creature to worldwide fame, but sightings um, did not stop after Hollywood moved in. I mean, near the small town of, of Folk, it's it's southeast of Texarkana, people are still reporting encounters with this mysterious creature even today. Yeah, the Beast of Boggy Creek will always be a standout among America's spooky legends because of his movie fame. Okay, he, has, he continues to be popular um, and uh, there's lots of modern sightings. The creature's often mentioned on TV documentaries including Monsters and Mysteries of America, Finding Bigfoot, Mysteries at the Museum, Our Friend Monster Quest, and The Lost Tapes and Weird Travels. So if you visit Folk Texarkana, just remember to keep an eye in the woods just as the sun is setting because you never know what you're going to see. You know, it might be the legendary beast of Boggy Creek. But you know what? So who or what is this, uh, this Momo? Moo Moo. Well, um, we're, we're not going to be talking about the recent internet meme of this like emaciated woman with bugged out eyes. Uh, Momo is the name of a local legend similar to Bigfoot, which was reported to live in Missouri. The name Momo is short for Missouri Monster, 
and it's reported to have a large pumpkin-shaped head, <laughs> a furry body, <laughs> sort of like me, and hair covering the eyes, which resembles a shag carpet. It was first reported in 1971 near Louisiana, mm -hmm. Missouri, by uh, Joan Mills and Mary Ryan. Momo was first reported up and down the Mississippi River, with later sightings documented further west by travel of waterways. It's supposedly a large, seven-foot-tall, hairy, black, man-like creature that emits a terrible odor. <laughs> a theme emerges. And some suspect it was a rogue American Indian. Following sightings in 1972, beginning on July 11th, it was reported by Terry Wiley and Doris Harrison. And it lasted for about two weeks. They found tracks, and they were submitted to Lawrence Curtis, director of the Oklahoma City Zoo and Botanical Gardens. And he said the tracks were that of an unknown primate species. <laughs> well, uh, you know, that, that whole discussion there wasn't at all racist. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Rogue, smelly Native Americans. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So maybe it's a skinwalker. And, you know, so many of these creatures seem to have pretty terrible smell, stinky, you know, nastiness. You know, it, that, that all seems to go hand in hand with Bigfoot. Yeah. I wonder if some of this is a reflection of those uh, early stories from Tibet, you know, and from Nepal, where people confused <laughs> the words thinking they meant smelly or dirty. Yes. Uh, stinking, you know, stinky apes, and uh, they got stuck onto these legends. I don't really know. It's hard to tell, but, you know, maybe. So, <laughs> okay, so then we'll continue with these guys. There's the Honey Island Swamp Monster. Mm. The creature is described as being bipedal, of course, seven feet tall, with gray hair or yellow and red eyes. He's accompanied by a disgusting smell. Of course. Footprints. Supposedly left by the creature have three webbed toes, according to local myths. Ooh. The first claim sighting was in 1963 by Harlan Ford, a retired air traffic controller who had taken up wildlife photography. After his death in 1980, a reel of Super 8 film showing the creature was found among his belongings. In 1974, the monster gained national fame after Ford and his friend Billy Mills claimed to have found unusual footprints in the area, as well as the body of a wild boar whose throat had been gashed. Ford continued to hunt the monster for the next six years. A legend tells of a train wreck in the area in the early 20th century. Okay, get a load of this. Okay. According to legend, a traveling circus was on the train, and from it, a group of chimpanzees escaped and interbred with the local alligator population like you do um okay <laughs> that's a good one yeah so that sounds all natural i mean that sounds like you know mm -hmm. something that could legitimately happen so we're yeah so we're into crazy crocodiles yeah you know. yeah so, so we're into crazy land now it's like uh an ape gator monster Mm-hmm. okay yep and while we're hanging out in the swamp we have the skunk ape of course stinky it's also known yeah, oh, you bet. Uh, also known as the Swamp Cabbage Man, <laughs> the Swamp Ape, the Stink Ape, of course, the Florida Bigfoot, the Louisiana Bigfoot, the Makaya Ape, the Swamp Squatch, oh my. and the Makaya Skunk Ape. 
It's a humanoid creature said to inhabit the U.S. states of Florida, North Carolina, and Arkansas. Although the reports from Florida are the most common ones, Florida man, you know, yeah. it, it is named for the appearance and for the foul odor that's said to accompany it. <laughs> In terms of appearance, the skunk ape is reported to resemble the Sasquatch of the Pacific Northwest, but is typically shorter. In comparison, it has long patches of fur on its shoulders and arms like an orangutan hmm. and is often described as a mottled rusty red color as opposed to the Sasquatch's brown or black. So there you have some variations yeah. here. The skunk ape has been part of Florida, Georgia, and Alabama folklore since the settler settling period. The Seminoles speak of similar foul-smelling, physically powerful, and secretive creatures called St. Kepke, a name which roughly translates as cannibal giant. Ooh. One of the first stories of large simian creatures in Florida came from 1818, when a report of what from what is now App Apalachicola, Florida, spoke of a man-sized monkey or an ape raiding food stores and stalking fishermen. Reports of the skunk ape were particularly common in the 1960s and 70s. In 74, sightings of the large, foul-smelling, hairy, ape-like creature, which ran up right on two legs, were reported in suburban neighborhoods of Dade County, Florida. That whole cannibal giant thing uh, makes me wonder if the Seminole legend, the Native American legend, might not be an extension of the Wendigo legend uh, that from the Northeastern Native Americans just you know, yeah. trans transported less hairy and transported to the swamp. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so it still stinks. It's yeah. interesting. They, all these parallels are very. Oh interesting. yeah, yeah. And it, you know, it, it of course still stinks. But anyway, so you yeah. have all of these ape-like Bigfoot creatures in a lot of states. But what about right here in our own backyard of Pennsylvania? Well, of course, local legends in the area of Columbia, PA, speak of a creature called the Albatwitch. <laughs> the Albatwitch is a small, it's about four foot tall, man-like creature covered with hair, lives in the wooded areas in eastern Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Their main area of residence seems to be near Chickies Rock, a heavily wooded area along the banks of the Susquehanna River, about a mile or two north of town. Albatwitches are reported from wooded areas all along the river shore. The creatures are named for a habit which they possess. Their bizarre common name is short for apple snitch. And they're reported to have a taste for apples, and they like to hang out in apple trees. Legends speak of how albatwitches would sometimes steal apples from picnickers, occasionally even throwing them at startled people. Legends also record that the creatures sat in trees, only coming down to find food. The legend of the Albatwitches uh, says that they may have become extinct or were driven in, nearly into extinction in the later years of the 19th century. Chickie's Rock, where the creatures supposedly live, does have a tradition of strange sights and sounds. It's another one of those haunted spots in Pennsylvania. Right, right. In the 1950s and 70s, a man-like creature was seen several times, and local legends also speak of sounds like the crack of a whip heard in the woods at night. There's that thumping, cracking sound. Yes. One can only wonder if there could be a connection with the Albatwitch. 
And whether these are connected or not, several sightings of Bigfoot-type creatures have been recorded from this area. A vague report concerning the sighting of a hairy humanoid came from Lancaster in 73. Lancaster is about 10 miles east of Columbia. Another came from the town of North Anvil, about 20 miles to the north. Same time in the same year. In addition, a number of reports have surfaced out of neighboring uh, areas uh, in York County. Also, some sources say the Susquehannocks, like many Indian tribes, had a belief in ape-like monsters or wild men and sometimes depicted them on their war shields. Mm. The Susquehannocks were a local tribe. Coincidentally, major evidence of their civilization, the ruins of a village and burial grounds, were found at the base of Chickie's Rock. Um, and I just want to add one other thing. Much like the, the monsters we talked about in our trifecta, um, there is an Abitwitch festival. It's a small festival in uh, the small town of Columbia, which is right along the Susquehanna mm-hmm. that has been run every year, uh, which is it becomes a paranormal sort of meeting place with folk music and crafts and food, good food and that sort of thing to promote the area. So um, there you go. Interesting. So, so I like how you mentioned it was a small community and this is a small creature, about four foot, you know, so I'm thinking like mm-hmm. a little like a, I don't want to say midget, but like a little midget Sasquatch that loves apples. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is that is that uh, something I shouldn't say? I, I'm I'm sorry for all the no, that's okay. folks that are you know that's politically okay. correct. But anyway, that brings us to probably the most one of the most exciting here. Um, Bat Squatch. What in the world is that? <laughs> That was beautiful. That's a work of art right there. Okay, so hang on to your hat. Bat Squatch is a flying cryptid that was allegedly sighted back at the origin of this near Mount St. Helens in the 1980s. It resembles a flying primate, similar to the a-hole and the Aring Batai of Southeast Asia, and its name is a combination, of course, of the words bat and Sasquatch. Did you just refer to him as a hole? I'm just curious. I just saw, yeah, I heard that. I don't know. Anyway. A hole. A hole. Sorry. A hole. Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, it works. Uh, Either one okay, works. Okay, so, so thank you, Captain Obvious. You know, it sounds like <laughs> a giant flying monkey from The Wizard of Oz. Take your army to the haunted forest and bring me that girl and her dog. Yes, doesn't it? Uh, The creature said to have yellow eyes, a wolf-like muzzle, blue fur. Now, there's a nice Uh blue fur, sharp teeth, bird-like feet, and leathery bat wings that can span up to 50 feet. It's huge. In addition, it's said to be nine feet tall. It has the ability to affect car engines and electronic devices. And some people who see it record lost time episodes. Oh, wow like in UFO sightings. Mm-hmm. On April 1994, Brian Canfield was driving in Washington's Pierce County when his truck suddenly died. Canfield said a large creature landed in front of him. He said it was human-like, nine feet tall, with bat-like wings, and sported a coat of blue fur. Ever since then, it has not been seen, and skeptics dismiss it, dismiss it as a hoax. It Sounds like it could be a kissing cousin to uh, the Mothman. Actually. That's what I was thinking. A second. 
that's what I was thinking. was reported in 2009 near Mount Shasta in California. Several hikers witnessed a huge creature with leathery wings spanning 50 feet. It flew out of a crevice in the mountain. At first, the eyewitnesses described the creature as having a head similar to a pterodactyl. However, upon re- re- reconsidering, the witnesses claimed it was more like a bat or a fox. In June 2011, the same year, an individual was walking his dog. He went to pick the dog up when he saw something in the sky. He said, I saw something flying in the sky. It had bat wings, blue fur, and a face similar to a, to a dog. It had glowing red eyes. It was about nine feet tall, and I watched it fly away. Interesting. So now we have an all-purpose creature with the traits of a lot of creatures that we have been dis- been discussing over time here we have a giant flying sasquatch dogman thunderbird ufo critter i mean it it, it, it's all of that in a bag of chips and and, everything is connected you know (laughs) and after a while you know this stuff starts to run all together yeah and now there's the an idea that the reason we can't find any tangible evidence for bigfoot like you know bodies Uh, is that they live in a dimension adjacent to ours. And that they and the dogmen that we talked about last week are connected to UFOs. They're seen together. And, and that's not just at Skinwalker mm-hmm. Ranch, where, of course, everything is seen right, together. Right, right. Maybe since yeah. the, uh, the administration here in the United States has just released these UFO documents, maybe we can finally get to the bottom of this. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. Because you know what? We see things that we, and we don't know what we're seeing, but we, the natural instinct of the human mind is to create patterns, whether mm-hmm. they're there or not. And also, as we noticed uh, from our podcast, to tell stories. Well, this has been a real trip down a rabbit hole, I would say. And so, <laughs> what topics are we going to be exploring from here? Well, we're going to do a number of topics. We're going to talk about authors. We're going to get. We're going to class up the joint a bit. We're going to talk about authors. We're going to talk about poetry. We're going to tell some ghost stories. We'll visit some haunted oh, yeah. places, and maybe talk to a UFO enthusiast or two. Um, we'll do our first live podcast, uh, which will also be on um, on uh, face- Facebook. And uh, our first international podcast, too. All that's coming up. And we're going to, you know, we're going to be exploring some topics that have been suggested by some of our faithful listeners. Um, And a tip of the hat to Shelby Rakowski and Joe Hess, who listen to our podcast and who have communicated with us about some of the things they'd like to hear us hear us absolutely we appreciate them for for listening and also for suggesting uh ideas that uh we could bring up during a future podcast and uh you know we have been growing and you know i i I tell you you know when people ask about this podcast you know i just got to go back and say you know what we are the podcast about everything so when we're talking about authors poetry ghost stories paranormal ufos uh midget sasquatch creatures i mean we cover it all and you know but but it sounds like to me i'm gonna have to get like i'm gonna get my pipe out here because we're gonna be really like you said classing it up a bit so um looking forward to it it's gonna be a 
Here comes oh, the yes. pipe. Oh, yes. Get out the pipe. Yeah. I'll be, so I'll be for, um, I will be pouring myself a, a fine vintage, uh, single malted, oh, okay. you know, and maybe have some. Oh, there around. you go. There you go. Yeah. You wearing a tie? Are you going to have a tie basement, on or right? you just going to. I could put up as, you know, bow ties are cool. Okay. All right. Yeah. I like a bow tie. And so. Maybe a fez. Too. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so I just want to say, uh, you know, again, we're growing, and I want to thank all of our listeners from all over the globe, uh, you know, except for those folks in Mars that still have not subscribed. I, I want to thank yeah. all of our subscribers for supporting us, for sharing our our uh, show. And again, just like our faithful listener had shared with us earlier about future suggestions, if you have a story, a unique story. You know, we would like to hear about us. So contact us. And there are many ways to do this. And I say it every episode. Visit us either through our email addresses at the top in the profile, or you can go to Facebook and it's facebook.com slash the podcast about everything. Or on Instagram, you can go to podcast about everything. Or of course, Twitter at podcast about EV2. And be sure to share our stuff. We have some really cool, interesting articles, photographs, things like that to, uh, to share with your friends. And so thank you so much for joining us for the podcast about everything. And as always, be safe. And remember, the truth is out there. Way out there. Way, way out there. Yep. <laughs>